Welcome to the Free the Wage Slave podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping frustrated nine to fivers get out of the rat race and succeed working for themselves. I'm Sky Kilji, a former corporate insurance wage slave who now travels the world year round working from my laptop. Guys, welcome back to Listener Q&A Part 2. It's actually the day after my birthday now. It's March 23rd. And I had to break this episode up into two. There was just an overwhelming amount of questions. Thanks, everybody, for sending them in. I had to answer them in a little bit of depth to cover them fully. And I didn't want it to be a super long episode. So I figured I'd just break it into two episodes that's easier for you to listen to. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's get into the rest of the questions. So the first question is from at KurtiKurt88 on Instagram, and he asks, a time management is hard at the best of times. How do you manage with all the travel? Kurt, you're absolutely right. It's very hard. It's completely disruptive. When I find myself working too long on a specific project and it kind of curtails my freedom, I have this tendency to just go and try and travel 20 countries in eight weeks and something ridiculous like that. And what I invariably find is I get absolutely no work done. So Miriam and I have now started to move towards a one month in each location approach, and it works a lot better. We use Airbnb, we rent an apartment, usually a one or two bedroom apartment. There's a desk in one of the rooms where I can work and things are a lot better. We actually work a lot more. The way we're working at the moment is we do days of back-to-back work for say 10 to 14 days fairly early in the morning and usually into the early hours of the evening. Last week, I think we went to bed between 3 and 5 a.m., six days out of seven. Not what I wanted, but just that's the way it kind of went last week. And what we do is we do that 10 to 14 days, doing as much as we can, and then we do a single day where we just take the day off, we go out, we leave it around 8 a.m., we come back around 10 p.m., we go to all the sites in the city, we hyper-compress that city, into a single day. And it's not going to be for everybody, but sometimes it's necessary. In January, we were in Rome just for two nights and we just had one full day to go out. So we had to go to, you know, the Colosseum, the Pantheon, the Trevi Fountain, all of those sites in a single day. The other things that I do that that definitely help is I use a tool called TripIt and TripIt takes all of your flight bookings and your reservations and it puts them into a timeline and sends you SMSs and reminders So you have everything organized before you go. That saves you a lot of time whilst you're traveling and it saves you a lot of money and effort just, you know, missing taxis and buses and whatever method of transport that you use. For me, I'm not one of those people that can work while I'm traveling. I actually just use that travel time as my downtime as I actually hate traveling. I didn't realize that until about two years into this nomad thing. I love being in the destination. I hate the actual process of travel. So I kind of go inwards, my headphones go on, noise cancellation shuts out the world. I watch a movie. Maybe I write or sketch on my tablet with a pen, doing a little bit of strategy work, thinking work, but I try really not to work at all. So I work really hard up until the time we leave. And then I do my best just to get through the travel period until we get somewhere else. And then we do the 10 to 14 days of work and then a full day off. Mostly this, uh, at this point, we're not working Sundays, although sometimes we use that for our other creative products. Miriam and I are creating a physical product right now, actually. More on that to come. But yeah, six days a week, pretty much long, long blocks of work, followed by a single day off where we hyper compress everything. That's pretty much how we're working. And that's how we've got time management at this point. 
It might change Kurt at some point in the future, but for now, that's what's working. So the next question is from Abby Fisher. And if you guys like jewelry, Abby runs a business called at AF London Official, AF as in Abby Fisher, at AF London Official. Some of the nicest personalized travel goods, jewelry boxes. It's something that every woman I know who sees that, they want that stuff. They just fall in love with it. They really like it. And Abby's great at what she does. So let's get into Abby's question. Hi, Sky. Uh, my question to you is, when you first start up a business, how much of your income do you think you should be putting back into the business and for how long? That's a really great question, Abby. So how much money do we put back into the business? Well, so the first thing that I'd tell you is it's important for us to be saving as a business just as we would as an individual. I recommend that we save a minimum of 10% of our monthly income. No matter what, you save that 10% of the monthly income. And the goal is to accumulate three months worth of expenses. So however much you usually have to pay to run your business in a month, times that by three, and that's the first goal. Keep saving a minimum of 10% until you hit that number. And once you've got three months, then you push it to six months, nine months, 12 months. Ultimately, you want to be at that point that even if your sales dried up, your sales channel just disappeared, the website where all your leads come from imploded, your business could still survive for maybe a year, maybe two years without any new sales. It's unlikely, but it's good to have that flexibility. If you look at what's happening in the world right now, people are probably not buying so many luxury goods and they're probably not buying as many things that are more of a want than a need. So having that ability to have that cash on hand makes a big difference when the sales dry up. Now, the question is, what do you use that money for? We do want to just hold cash, but we can also use some of the cash also. There's three things that I really recommend using the money for. One is savings for tax time. So if you have an accountant, they can tell you based on your current profitability, what your tax liability looks like, and you have that cash put aside. So when the tax bill comes in, you don't have to find it from you know the money you've got in your account. It's already taken care of. The second thing I would tell you is reinvest your cash in the things that are generating sales. So if you are running ads on Facebook, for example, and you can see in analytics that that is driving sales, well, then it just makes sense to put as much money as you can into that. If every time you spend $100 on ads, you get $250 in sales, well, then you want to spend as much money as you can as long as it's still profitable. Then the third area I recommend you spend is product development. And that's because you can sell new products to your existing customers. So when we're trying to grow a business, people often get obsessed with generating new customers, but it's actually possible to double the size of a business by just selling twice as much product without any new customers. If the average person gives you, say, $50, and you can get the average person to spend $100, well, you can double your business and you haven't had to go out there, spend money trying to find new customers. So product development is definitely, definitely something I recommend. And why I like it is not only can you sell that to existing customers as an additional purchase, you can sell that to new customers as part of a new bundled product. So if they're just buying a jewelry box at the moment, you can give them a kit where it's a jewelry box, it's something for their makeup, it's a passport holder, whatever your other products are, bundle that into a kit. And then your first time customer that's currently spending, say, $50 with you, well, if they're now spending $75, that average order value has gone up. And then every single customer that you get from that point onwards is worth more money. 
So that's why I'm really a fan of product development. In terms of what the amount is that you save, like I said, a minimum of 10%. Where you go beyond that, it really depends on where your business is. You have to know your break-even point. The break-even point is quite simply, what are all of the expenses my business has to pay this month, including my salary, including the fees for the accountants, the product development, the advertising, the buying the stock, all of that stuff. What is that amount? That is your break-even and your business profit starts after that. In my marketing agency, we were doing about $8,000 a month in revenue and we weren't making any profit because I wasn't in control of my break-even and I had you know, ridiculous amount of costs. And what I had to do was make some changes, get rid of some project managers. And now we've got the same 8,000 in revenue roughly, but we're making you know, four or $5,000 in profit a month. So being in control of your costs and knowing that break-even point is going to tell you, A, am I making enough profit? And B, how much can I reinvest in my business? So I hope this helps you just understand how I reinvest my money back into my business, where I reinvest it, and how much I reinvest. So the next question is actually from Abby's husband, which is Mr. Dan Fisher, a good friend of mine since we were probably about 13 years old. We really started from the bottom, now we're here. Although I'm not quite sure where here is in 2020 with the world the way it is at the moment. But anyway, let's hear Dan's question. Hi, Sky. My question is, with zero startup capital, what do you think the easiest business is to start up with no capital and only time at your expense? Uh, look forward to hearing your answer. All right, this is a tough one. And disclaimer right out the gate. One, I'm going to be biased based on what's easy for me, but I'll try and make it a little bit generic so you know it can apply to everybody. But naturally, what's easy for you depends on your skills. Now, I would categorize easy as there are no barriers to getting started. I wouldn't be starting a food business where I need to rent a kitchen and I need to rent staff and I need to you know, have the government come and inspect the facility and I need licenses. I wouldn't do any of that. From my perspective, the easiest business to start is something online. You literally just need your computer or even your phone and an internet connection. And you can even get that free. And, you know, I'm going to admit this here. At one point, I was driving to McDonald's to use their free Wi-Fi. <laughs> dark, dark times, but, you know, we got to start somewhere. You know, with the internet, you've got a, an audience for whatever it is you're interested in or you sell. And all you have to do is aggregate their attention, which means put out content that gets them interested in following you. And then you can, you know, introduce products. So how would I do it now in 2020? Well, I would probably have a website, but that would cost maybe $10 for the domain name and you're going to have to pay for hosting. So if we're going completely true to $0 startup and just time, then I would start an Instagram account and I would focus that on a specific niche. So a specific group of people interested in something. So for example, I have Free the Wage Slave on Instagram. And that's about people who are interested in quitting that nine to five traditional life to start living and working on their terms. Perhaps it's a business, it's remote work, it's travel. Now, when you are the person who's aggregated that audience, they are warming their hands around the fire that you've built, so to speak. Then you assume something of an authority type role and you can actually very subtly and gently promote products. And if your audience is big enough, even if one or 2% only click through and purchase, you get a commission. So this is called affiliate marketing. And affiliate marketing is what I would recommend. Back in something like 2010, 
I um, went to a website called clickbank.com and ClickBank has thousands of digital products. And the beauty of this is you can refer people to those products and you get a percentage of the money. They share a commission with you. And that means that you can start to monetize somebody else's hard work. They've already built a product that's actually great. And you're just sending people to your link. They click your link. And if they buy, you get money put in your bank. I was making something like $1,000 a week years ago promoting a product that helped predict the lottery numbers, just a completely ridiculous product. Like, I'm certain it didn't work. But people were paying that website 10 bucks a week. So every person I referred, they were paying 10 bucks a week. And I was getting a commission and it just kind of added up to a lot of money at some point. Unfortunately, it didn't last for more than about two and a half months. And then um, I wasn't able to do that anymore. But it did work quite well for a long time. And all that really took me was an hour probably researching the product. And then the audience that I had built, I you know showed that content to and some of them clicked and I got a commission. Now, a second way that you can do that is my girlfriend Miriam has an Instagram account, which is veganing.co, V-E-G-A-N-I-N-G.co. And she's just growing that. It's quite a new account. She's got maybe about 600 followers. And today she got offered a brand opportunity with, I think it was Bird's Eye and some other brand that do kind of like vegan type food products. And they're offering to pay her for a single post. And, you know, it's not a huge amount of money, but that's a brand new account. So, you know, by aggregating that audience, these opportunities come up. So you can do a layered approach where you're doing these brand partnerships and you're, you know, doing some promotional posts for them. You can do affiliate marketing type stuff. That is really where I would do it. You can learn all of this stuff for free on YouTube. So Dan, that's my answer. Affiliate marketing, brand promotion, build an audience and make recommendations to them. That's the fastest and easiest way to monetize without any startup capital. So the next question is from my good friend Rahul over in India. Rahul is the CEO at wetrainbrains.com. That is neurofeedback. It's brain training that was actually developed by NASA. And I was going there once a month for brain training and it totally, totally transformed my life. I realized I had PTSD symptoms in my brain. My brain wasn't working. I couldn't think clearly. And Rahul is somebody that changed my life. So I love that we've got a question from him. So Rahul's question is how to prepare for speaking engagements. So whether it's an engagement or you just have to do a talk at your job or, you know, for your business as a pitch, here is what I would recommend. Now, the first thing is I had a horrible experience with this. I was always scared of talking to a crowd. I remember I'd be in meetings in my corporate job and they'd say, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. And all I'd have to say is, hi, I'm Sky. I am a key account manager or whatever my job was. And I've been in the company six years. Easy, right? I know who I am. I know what my job title is. I know how long I've been here. I'd start to feel like I was getting hot from the inside. I'd just sweat. And even though I might have delivered it in a way that was, you know, calm, inside I was just burning up and I hated it. Well, when I got to Dubai, we were running CEO business workshops and we started offering a weekend workshop and we'd get about 50, 50 something participants. And this is a business thing, right? So these are guys who are relatively successful coming in. And the night before a workshop, Rajesh, the CEO, told me, you're presenting the entire two-day workshop tomorrow morning. Now, this is about 9 p.m. at this point. We're just leaving the office. And I don't know what to teach. There's no training manual. He's never taught me it. I'd actually sat in that workshop once as a participant a month before. And there I was the next morning. I was going to have to walk in there 
and do a 10 hour session. And then the next day, come back and do another 10 hour session. It was just terrifying. I don't think I slept that night. I was having heart palpitations driving to that office in the morning and my palms were sweating. My knees weak, arms were heavy, all of that. Lucky I hadn't had any mom spaghetti. I was really messed up. And what I learned from that experience was, yeah, it sucked. I wasn't like shaking, stammering, not able to talk. I'd done a best man speech by then. Unfortunately, I was in Dubai, so I didn't have any whiskey to steady me this time. But I just kind of got on with it and did it. And, you know, I had to do it again the next time and it wasn't so bad. And then the next time, and I learned by falling off the bike, you know, Rajesh always told me, you don't learn to ride a bike by reading a book on it or going to a seminar. You learn by getting on that bike and falling off and bashing yourself up. And that's what happened. And the big, I think, breakthrough for me on that, Rahul, was I shifted the focus from being about me to them. So I stopped worrying about how I looked to be worried about serving the audience. And there's a great scene. There's a Bollywood movie called Padman. It's about the man who introduced tampons to India. Strange topic, I know, but go and watch it. It's awesome. And there's a scene at the end, and here's a spoiler. So just pause for 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this. He's in the UN and he's giving a speech and he's just an Indian from a village who doesn't have command of the English language. And, you know, verbally it's not great, but his message that he conveys is so powerful. He gets a standing ovation. People just got the passion, got the authenticity, and they understood that his desire was to serve them and they admired him and respected him for that. So my lesson really was when I focus on serving others, that will come across and I'll have an easier time because the audience will enjoy it more. That gives me positive feedback. It just makes a big difference. The other things that made a difference to me, number one, give away your best stuff for free. Imagine it's your mother. If your mother asks you, you're not going to tell her, go and opt into my email list and get my 16 part course and then click this link. Like if you do, you're a scumbag. I'm putting it out there. It's your mum. Okay. Give away your best stuff for free. People will just want to give back to you and share your stuff and help you if you help them. I also did hire a vocal coach, at Lisa Hugo Official, I think it is on uh, Instagram. She's actually the vocal coach for a uh, semi-finalist of American Idol, which is um, quite interesting. And she really helped me to use my voice more. If she's listening to this, she's probably hitting me, catching all of my errors. But it really, really helped just to go there once a week, 90 minutes, and practice just improv and using the full range of my voice and different tones and speeds. Just that practice, that preparation, it helped me. When it comes to the visuals, Rahul, I'd say go with the Apple style of presentations, super simple, very big letters, not too many words, and use lots of images. An image is worth a thousand words and use lots of videos because a video is worth a thousand images. Keep it visual, keep it simple. It's better to have a ton of slides with not much on them than a few slides that are so packed people get overwhelmed and they don't pay attention. Next few things I would say, get the audience to participate. Don't preach, teach, just try and teach them something. Don't show off, show up. Don't try to impress, try to express. I hope that helps, Rahul. I know you have done a lot of this kind of speaking, so I'm probably not teaching you anything that you don't know, but they're the things that help me and I appreciate your question. So the next one is from Mr. C. Knowles on Instagram. And he asks me, did you face any opposition from friends or family when you stepped out? How did your friend circle change, adapt after that moment? So by step out, he's talking about, you know, quitting the nine to five. 
Well, what I would tell you is my family have always been supportive of doing what makes you happy. I'm very lucky that we don't have judgment in our family of you should do this or you should do it that way. We're quite individualistic. Just in the run up to quitting nine to five, I'd actually been cultivating my own support circle. Shout out Team Alchemy, Steph, Helen, Natalie, Mike. This was a group of you know five people who were committed to personal development and actually doing our own thing in the world. And having those people doing that, that once a month, I'd go over to Greenwich, meet them, spend the day, and we'd work on all kinds of personal development stuff. But knowing I was coming back that month and I, you know, I had to check in with my team, that really pushed me to another level. And also helping to understand some of the emotional issues and the trauma from the past that was probably blocking me and, and controlling a lot of my behaviors. Steph at Project Glow just really, really helped me with a lot of that. So I just couldn't have done it without them. And during the transition was a pretty rough time in my life. And um, Steph was a huge help throughout that period. So having that support network was just vital from being a bird whose wings have been clipped and I'm falling, I'm about to hit the rocks, to being able to start flapping those wings and take flight, you know, in this new direction of my own again. Now, mostly everybody else in my life outside my family and my support circle they were pretty much happy when I'd tell people at work what I was going to do. You know, they liked it because I was doing what many of them had dreamed of, but they just couldn't because they had families and kids. And, you know, they used to look at me with this look in their eye that was, it's not jealous, but it was, I wish I did that when I had the chance. I could see the regret in their life. And, you know, I really believe that regret is just one of the worst things that we can live with. I'd rather, you know, die without regrets. And I think a lot of people would. The new circle that made the biggest difference for me, I think, outside of Team Alchemy as I was making the transition, was once I landed in Dubai on day one, I literally landed at the airport. I'd come out of hospital less than eight days before. I'd had blood poisoning. I'd lost like 30, 40 pounds. I was really sick and I just struggled to get onto that flight. And on day one, I landed and I was in a yacht in Dubai Marina with the Ferrari driving CEO of a $1 billion a year company. And you know, on day one, I'm on that boat and he's got his Rolex on and he's asking me, what do I think about the economic situation in Thailand? I didn't have a damn clue what was happening in Thailand. <laughs> I'd been there a few times, but not for business, you know? So just being around people like that and engaging in those kind of conversations, I had to step my game up. Being in Dubai in that CEO program was great because not only was I teaching, I was also part of a CEO mastermind with some of the finest CEOs in Dubai, their companies were doing hundreds of millions of dirhams a year. And I was going to India once a month to teach there. Again, people with huge companies, talking to people where English isn't their first language, just being around a completely different culture and a completely different level of people. I had dinner with a Forbes list billionaire on maybe eight or nine different occasions. And he'd come for dinner every night and we'd sit every night for three to four hours and I'd get to sit in the garden and just talk to him and, you know, try and understand what that world is like. It was difficult and rewarding. Those things in your mind of, am I good enough to sit at this table? They're definitely there at some point. And then at another point when those people accept you, and actually they were some of the nicest, most generous people I met, that also does something. You realize, you know what, I do belong at this table. And I think, yeah, so in short, the opposition was short. The friends and family circle changed with Team Alchemy being my transition support. And then the people in Dubai and India 
being my support circle as I, um, you know, stepped into that new life and just shout out to the Nagji family, Rajesh, Sejal, Jay. They were my family in Dubai while I was away from my own on Christmas day, on birthdays, you know, they really, really took care of me and it made a difference. And, um, if any of you are listening out there and you're thinking, you know, it's going to be lonely when I make that step, I promise you the universe, God, whatever it is, it does provide for you. And you will find some people out there who are your people who will take care of you. So don't let that reason that you don't make the jump. All right. Another question from Michael Argyu at Michael Argyu on Instagram. Let's hear it, Mike. How important do you think it is that your significant other shares your same entrepreneurial vision and goals? I think it's incredibly important. Being an entrepreneur is without doubt one of the loneliest occupations, if we can call it an occupation, one of the loneliest endeavors that you're going to take on. You are trying to create something that only exists in your mind. And when it's only in your mind, the rest of the world can't see it and you can't explain it as vividly as you see it in your mind. So, you know, there's a lot of doubt and you need that person at home to believe in you, to tell you that you're doing great, that it's going to happen and to be supportive. Do they need to be an entrepreneur themselves? No, they don't. But do they need to provide that environment that allows you to, you know, go out there and fight that fight every day? I would say yes. Listen, Mike, I've been in both types of relationships. I've been in a relationship where it was just a nine to five life. And, you know, when that person's family comes from that, that's all that they see. And I've been in another relationship, my most recent one, where, you know, that more entrepreneurial environment existed. And that space of just creating something from nothing and understanding of what that life is like, it makes a huge difference. My relationship that I'm in now is just incredible for my work. And it's as simple as, you know, Miriam can see sometimes that I'm stressed and she'll just come over and start rubbing my head. And I didn't even realize I had stress there. She'll come give me a hug. She'll talk to me. I get to actually talk about things and see things that I'm not seeing because I'm too close to it. You know, she'll just ask me questions like, okay, what about that? What about this? And, you know, through that, I have so many more breakthroughs than I'd ever have on my own. If you ever think you're going to succeed on your own as an entrepreneur, you're kidding yourself. There's a reason that they always say, you know, behind every great man is a greater woman. And I do believe that. I think women do provide that nurturing that we need. They have that intuition that we sometimes lack. They have the feeling part where we have traditionally the logical part. Now, of course, we both have that. But, you know, sometimes with guys, we just get too logical and we don't see the other side of things. So I think having the right woman provides that opposite side to what you have that creates balance and creates something that's more whole and the insights that you'll get are richer. The preservation of your energy is on another level. She will make sure that you are not too stressed, that you're feeling good, that you're in the right state emotionally, physically, mentally to do the work that you need. And, you know, Mike, you know, this as an entrepreneur yourself, when you're doing all of that work, the last thing you want is to come home and have to justify yourself as to why you're doing this. It's tough when you come home and there's someone there who's created a nurturing space and takes care of you. It means you go back out into the world the next day, ready to fight even harder. And it's just so motivating. You really feel like you're on a team that you two are building something together for your future. It is just the absolute best. And, you know, once you experience that, 
you'll never go back. And I do believe it really bonds you to that person because there is that sense of actual partnership rather than I'm doing my thing and you're doing your thing. So I do think in short, Mike, it is really, really important. And I would encourage you to find that. I think for your entrepreneurial endeavors, it's going to make a big difference. You're a talented guy. And I think, you know, once that part of your life gets settled, then it gives you that jump off point, that base to go to the next level. Right. And another question from my sister, Jade Varley at Suited to Business on Instagram. Let's hear Jade's question. The third question that I had was the use of technology and social media. I don't think I use all the latest and greatest tools for graphic design or for, I use Canva, but I feel like there's things that I'm missing. So if you have any tips on the best technology to use with social media, that would be great. Cheers. Okay. So the first thing is don't worry about latest and greatest. What I would tell you is just to worry on the tools that speed up your workflow. So take a look in true 80-20 fashion, where am I spending 80% of my time and how can I reduce that? And on the other side, what 20% of my activities produces 80% of the results? So if it's social, which posts are getting you all of the shares, the saves, the likes, the comments, all of that engagement and do more of that stuff and you'll get the same results with less work. And on the other side, if you're spending 80% of your time you know, on graphic design, Ask yourself, is it actually better just to pay $10 an hour to somebody and pay 50 bucks a week and get them to do it for you? With people in the Philippines and India, that's definitely possible. Websites like Fiverr.com, you can get a lot of stuff done relatively cheaply. If you want to do it yourself because you want to keep control of things, I understand that, then I would tell you that Canva is a pretty good tool for the design side of things. Outside of that, I would tell you that a tool that automates your social posting is pretty much mandatory at this point. You can use later Hootsuite Buffer. They have a lot of free plans that can do a lot of the work. And that will post something to Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest automatically for you. If you think about the amount of time that you probably spend posting, it probably goes like this. You open your phone, you find the image. If the image is fine as it is, you post it. If not, you spend 15 minutes editing it. You then type out your caption, that takes probably another 20 minutes. And then you have to re repeat that across the five other social platforms. And while you're there, you see notifications, DMs, you get distracted. And you know what should take 25 minutes probably becomes an hour. By using a social posting tool, you're not seeing all of those distractions. You're just uploading your image once, and then you're uploading your caption once, and it's going to distribute that across those four or five platforms. I would tell you, definitely look into social media scheduling as the um, platform of choice. What I would also tell you is choose one that does allow you to get all of your analytics and your results in one place. And ideally even has a messaging area where you can go in and reply to DMs and comments if you wish. Okay. It does need to be one where it doesn't distract you while you're doing the posting. So a separate area. Me personally, I'm using Promo Republic for my posting and I just use the iPhone apps for the individual comments and likes and DMs and that kind of stuff. Okay. But that's why I would recommend Jade spend all of the money and time on the social scheduling. That's going to save you a lot of hard work and save you a lot of time also. Okay. So another one from at Mr. C Knowles on Instagram. If you could make the transition from corporate to being your own boss again, what would you do differently? Well, I'd been working from home daily anyways, five days a week. I was at home. I was going to the gym in the middle of the day, 
And between you and me, and keep this quiet, I was probably doing my job in about two hours a day. And when I did go to head office, which was in Bristol, I would get the train first class. Usually I would drive in my company car that was brand new to the car park, park it right at the station. Company would pay for it. I'd get on the train into London, the train to Bristol, stay in a lovely hotel, go out for dinner in the evening and some drinks, do some work in the office and come back. It was pretty sweet, but it was unfulfilling. And it was unfulfilling because I wasn't really using the skills that I liked, the marketing and online stuff. I'd been working on that stuff since 2008 on my own. I had a website, a fitness website that I grew and eventually sold. I had a marketing agency that I still have now. But I would have just quit way sooner than I did. And the reason I didn't was I had a mortgage. And if you actually look up the word mortgage, you might not know this. It means debt until death. Listen to the word mortgage, M-O-R-T, mortician, mortuary. So mortgage is debt until death. Mine was a 30-year mortgage at one point when I first got the house. And that kept me there because I had to keep making that payment every month. And I just didn't know, hey, if I, you know, jump ship and I go and do my own thing, am I going to be able to make that payment every month? Truth is, I was able to, and I probably could have a long time before. It just was the fear keeping me there. What I would have done differently, I would have taken on less liabilities, which means less expenses every month. So my freedom could have come faster. Had I not had a mortgage, what I probably would have done is just rent a room in a house that's going to cost me $150 a week, £150 a week. And that would have been a lot less money. I would have just eaten basic food. I probably would have had a real basic car. I just would not have accumulated all the expenses that I did because, you know, there's a saying of whatever you own ends up owning you. And I had the house, I had the car, I had the travel, all of that. On paper, it looked great, but I didn't have my freedom. And I kind of lost myself in that. So yeah, if I was making that transition to being my own boss again, whew, I would have not taken on those liabilities. So a follow-up question from Mr. C. Knowles. Why do you think some people face a crossroad moment or moments in their life while others don't? Well, I think the first thing is I would say crossroads are just the choices about the direction that your life is going in. I think everybody comes to a crossroads, but not everybody recognizes it. And I think they don't recognize it because often the crossroads is disguised as betrayal, as pain, as failure. So, you know, sometimes it's a little bit difficult for us in those moments. So we shut down and we say, I'm not going to make any decision. So, you know, coming to the crossroads is you go there or you go there. You choose left or you choose right. It's the fork in the road. And sometimes people just say, you know what? I'm going to sit here at the fork and I'm going to sulk. I'm not making a decision. I'm done. And they wait there for a while but eventually they have to move, right? So I think everybody comes to the crossroads and it doesn't really matter if we respond immediately or we wait a little while and kind of dwell there for, for a period. I think it becomes a crossroad moment based on how you respond to it. If you ignore it and you sit there and sulk, I promise you another one's going to come. You don't get out of making that decision. You might delay it for a while, but another's going to come and it's probably going to be harder to kick you in the ass to actually get you to make a decision. My whole life, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I sat at that crossroads sulking for so long and the universe or God or whatever you call it at some point said to me, right, dude, you've been not doing what we've asked you to. You've been wishing and telling us this whole time that you want to do this and you want to do that. And you're doing nothing. We're going to completely turn your life upside down, put you in the tumble dryer. And by the time you come out, 
you're going to have no choice but to go in that direction. And that's exactly what happened. And my mentor, Dr. Demartini, you know, he taught me one great thing that you grow through two things. One is support and one is challenge. This is the reason that your mum will beat your ass and then come and kiss you. <laughs> if you if you came from one of those families, you know what I'm talking about. You're going to get a smack, but then you're going to get told, oh, it's okay, don't make me whip you again if you just do what I tell you. <laughs> so support and challenge is what makes the difference in our life. That's what creates growth. That is the conditions for growth. So you are going to come to a crossroads, whether you know it's through the nice way or the hard way. What I will tell you is if you are feeling some underlying anxiety, that's a sign that a crossroads is coming up. My underlying anxiety was I'm going to die with these dreams inside of me. And I never really brought myself to the crossroads. I should have listened to that and took myself there and made the decision. But, you know, I was young and I just didn't know what to do. And I was trapped by a mortgage and, you know, all of that stuff. What I try to do now is if I feel some underlying anxiety, I go inwards. I ask myself why. I usually find it's a decision that I have to make. I figure out, you know, what route A looks like, what route B looks like, and I make the decision because trust me, it's a lot nicer than waiting for the universe or whatever else to kick your ass into making that decision. Okay, the next question. These days, do you spend more time thinking about long or short-term goals? I think the way I'm built is long-term is always how I look at things. My thinking at the moment about goals is completely focused on impact and legacy. So I'm in what we would call a farming stage where we're not extracting money, we're building something. So there's two approaches. There's hunting and farming. The hunter wants to kill something and eat something today. And the farmer wants to plant something that brings fruit in the future. And for me, the farming approach has always been smarter because, you know, if you're a hunter and you kill something, you eat for the day and you eat good, right? but then you're done and you have to go out hunting again. And that means every day you have to get up and hunt and kill. And sure, look, as an entrepreneur, you have to do some of that. You've got to close the deals and, and whatever else. But farming where you just plant seeds today and you nurture them, you get an entire tree that just springs a ton of fruit for eternity and perpetuity. That to me is just smarter. It's you know more efficient, less effort and a greater payoff. The only downside is you have to wait for it. And you know I'm totally fine with that. The short-term stuff is basically what makes the long-term stuff happen in business. So you do need income, you do need sales, you do need to do collections and make sure you know people are paying your invoices. You do need to get the tasks done that make those big long-term projects come alive. So in short, I think about both, but long-term is probably the most dominant. And anything I do short-term is just to support the long-term vision and goals and dreams that I'm working on. So he also asks... How has your relationship with money changed over the years? Okay, confession time. I was never, ever a saver. I was carpe diem, live for today and spend. We didn't have money growing up. I was actually born in a caravan. Not a lot of people know that. I was a nomad from birth. So, you know, money just wasn't something that was in our life. I remember getting five pound pocket money when I was in London, probably around, I don't know, eight or nine years old. And it would be gone in minutes. Like I'd run straight to the store and spend it on things that lasted a minute, like sweets. I wasn't smart enough to go and buy a magazine you can look at again and again. I'd just nail that bag of sweets, get that high from the sugar, and I was done. It's probably really bad behavior and probably explains why I was broke for a lot of my younger years. I had this all or nothing personality. And, you know, I'm an Aries. I still have that personality now. 
But as you get older, you start to kind of curb it a little bit. As I started to work, I accumulated debt. I had no savings. As soon as I got my paycheck, I was balling. I was in the club. I was buying drinks, shots, bottles, all of that. And I lived real good for about five, six days. And then I was broke for the rest of the month. I was like checking my debit card. Is it going to go through doing that thing in the line when the card doesn't go through? And you're like, oh, it was working today. And there's definitely money in there. And oh, and that. And everyone in the line's looking at you. They know what the situation is. They're looking at you like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've been there. Okay. And the turning point for me is when I got into personal development stuff. And this is, you know, a long time ago, like 2008. I learned a couple of really cool things. One was from T. Harv Ecker, which is called the JARS method. The JARS method is you put money into a different jar and each jar has a different purpose. So one is the fun jar and you can just blow that on whatever you want. The other one is your savings. The other one is your bills, you know, your lifestyle expenses. The other one maybe is charity. And you can figure out what you want those jars or envelopes. I did it with envelopes because, you know, I had cash. You can figure out what you want each envelope to be for. And at the beginning of the month, you get your paycheck and you allocate it on day one to those. And you can only spend what is in those envelopes. Plus side of that is sometimes you lose an envelope and you find it a long time later. I found 200 pounds in the back of my office chair hidden away. It was hidden so good that I lost it. (laughs) But the jars thing, which is really about giving every dollar a job. So every piece of money that you get, if you don't give it a job or you don't allocate it somewhere, you will find a way to spend it. So that was huge for me. And I still do that now. I just do it digitally with online accounts. As soon as I get that paycheck, I have an accountant that does my personal accounts. And he tells me, make all of these transfers. And that means I've got money for travel. I got money for food. I have money for savings. I have probably about 12 different accounts with different things. One of them is called stupid mistakes account. If I get a parking ticket or a fine or something like that, that money's there. That made a huge, huge difference for me. The second thing was I remember seeing Dr. Martini in London and we went through an exercise where we did the math and I realized that I needed a retirement fund of $1.6 million to get £40,000 a year. At the time, my salary was £40,000. This is a while back when I was in nine to five. And I realized like £40,000 in London doesn't feel like a good lifestyle. Now imagine that same amount of money by the time I'm retired. It's probably going to be nothing, right? Things are getting more expensive in London. And the reason $1.6 came out was you basically accumulate that amount of cash And then the interest that you get from that cash in an annuity or a pension fund is the amount that you're going to receive. And it worked out to if I had 1.6 million lump sum, I'd get 40,000 pounds a year. And that math just terrified me. I realized like, shit, I don't have any savings. 1.6 million. I don't have long to get there. I realized, number one, a nine to five job wasn't ever going to get me there. Huge turning point, ready to leave. I realized that accumulating that lump of cash was what was going to give me freedom. And this is where it's really important. Martini taught me that, you know, your highest values are what drives your life. And in the past, I used to think freedom was being able to spend whatever I wanted whenever I wanted it. What I realized was actually I wanted freedom of time, freedom of location, and not freedom of just being able to spend. So my mind shifted at that point to, Let me try and accumulate that lump of cash because that will give me the freedom to spend my time 
where I want to be wherever I want in the world. So it was just shifting in a way where it's still my highest value. It's still freedom, but it's more important for me to have freedom of time and location than it is to be able to spend and be someone else's bitch, quite honestly. So that was huge. And where I'm at now with it really is I mostly don't spend outside of the money that I allocate using the jars method. I don't spend beyond that. Miriam's great. She helps me with that. She's awesome with money. I do still have some debt, going to be real with you, but I budget every month. I pay off that money. I save every month. And most importantly, I invest every month. So not only am I you know, now saving, I'm actually investing to grow that nest egg that hopefully is 1.6 million at some point. So yeah, in short, huge, huge transformation in how I look at money. It's made a big difference. And I'll tell you one thing, running a business is going to help you with that too. You will go broke real quick if you don't know what you're doing. So I definitely recommend that for anyone, even if it's a small little side hustle, side project, run the accounts for a while and you're going to see a lot of areas where you know your business is going to die. And when you translate that across to your life, you're going to see why your financial situation is probably not how you'd want it to be. So that's what I would tell you. I hope that answers your question. The next question, how do you generally approach making a big decision? Do you ever have a set approach? Well, there are three things that I do. So the first is I think about a quote by Henry David Thoreau, which is the real cost of something is the amount of life being given up for it. And that is just huge. There are times when I've got a potential project from a client and it could be five or $6,000, but I just don't like working with a client. I can just sense that they're difficult to work with. They make me jump through hoops. I'm going to have to do work that's off the clock. And I just know that if I think I can get that project done in 20 hours, it's probably going to be more like 50 or 60. And then I look at it really, do I want to give up that amount of my time? Because every time I take on work for somebody, I'm actually giving them a piece of my life. And I value that because no matter how much money you make on your deathbed, you can't buy more life, right? It doesn't matter how much money you've got. And you can't take that with you. You'll take those memories and time is where you can create those memories. So I really just look at that. What is the upside versus the downside? I then ask myself about both sides of the situation. Again, shout out Dr. Martini. There are equal positives and negatives to every situation. So I create a list of all of the negatives and all of the positives. And I don't stop until it's completely equal on both sides. If I only have three negatives and 10 positives, I know that I'm not seeing this from a balanced perspective so I work really, really hard to get it equal. So it balances my brain. It balances my emotions. And I know, okay, what is the decision from a place of rationale and logic and calmness? Not because I'm excited about it, so I want to do it, and then it turns out bad. Or not from, you know, this thing looks terrible. I don't want to do it just because it's something that makes me uncomfortable. You know, for example, like if I got invited to speak in front of a really big audience, I'd be uncomfortable and some part of me would make me want to say no and rationalize why I'm doing that. But actually, if it was something that could transform my life and my business, it makes sense to do that. So you have to really just bring your emotions in check and I do it by asking about both sides. Third thing I do, I look at what can I control and not control. I'm looking at the severity of the upside versus the downside. If it's real good, how good could it be? If it's real bad, how bad could it be? So I'm thinking like an investor. I'm always looking for either unlimited upside, the maximum benefit, and I'm also looking for a capped downside. So what I mean by that is I want the plus to be huge and I want 
the downside to be as low as possible. This is just like quitting my nine to five. The downside was, okay, fine. I can not be able to pay my bills, have to sell my house, probably get about 50 grand for that anyway, and move in somewhere else and probably live somewhere else in the world. And the upside is, well, my income is limited anyway in nine to five. I can never go beyond you know, a certain salary. I'd made them $100 million in three months and they didn't give me a pay rise that was significant and that's why I quit. So I just saw like, no matter what I do there, I'm never going to be able to get my income high enough. And in my mind, I knew I need to get 1.6 million to be able to have the amount of money that I want for a basic life in retirement. So the upside was huge. I can make any amount of money as an entrepreneur, but in nine to five, I can't. And the downside was, okay, sure, if I have to sell my house, I'm going to get money. I'm going to be you know, down for a while feeling like a failure, but I can just keep downsizing or living somewhere else in the world while I figure out how to make it happen. So the downside was so small and the upside was huge. So I'm always looking for that. In terms of specific processes, go and take a look at MJ DeMarco decision-making matrices. The one that I use is called the Weighted Average Decision Matrix. And uh, it's a really simple process. You go to helpmydecision.com and you'll find it there. Basically, you take a decision. For example, should I do nine to five or become a freelancer? And then you isolate, you determine the different factors. So maybe one of the factors is making enough money to be able to eat. And you're going to list your 10 different factors. And then you put a score of one to 10 of how important that is. So for me, making enough money to eat is clearly a 10, right? Like I'm not skinny. I don't ever want to be too skinny. I need to eat. So that's going to have a weight of 10. Then the last thing you do is you rate it from one to 10 based on your ability to make it happen. So for example, having enough money to eat is a 10. Can I make that happen through freelancing? I'm going to give it a six. Well, 10 times six means I get 60 points for that specific factor. You do that for all of your different factors and you get a score. For example, you're going to end up with like 440 points for should I do nine to five? And you're going to get 695 points for freelance. Well, the bigger score means that's the decision made. So as long as you do the factors correctly and you weight them correctly, that process takes the decision out of emotional and based on the information you put in, it's showing you the answer like, hey, you said these things are important. Here's how important you said it was. And here's how you know, much you said that you could make that thing happen. Therefore, here is your score. It makes the decision for you. Helpmydecision.com. I really recommend that one. Ultimately though, head, heart, gut. That's how I really finalize the decision. Yes, I do the three things I spoke about. Yes, I do the decision matrix. But I ask my head, my heart, and my gut. And if two out of three are telling me the same thing, I go with that. It gives me a good mix of logic and a good mix of feeling. And again, that's just my process. So take from that what's useful, leave what isn't. But I hope that answers your question and I hope it's helpful for you. I'm sure it will be. And the next one's another question from Daniel Fisher at the Daniel Fisher on Instagram. Sky, my question to you is where do you think the biggest growth opportunity is in the next 10 years? What industry is it going to be in? I look forward to hearing from you. That's a really great question. In short, I don't think it's going to be a specific industry. You know, honestly, nobody knows the answer to that question. I think it's going to be more about the way that we live and how that shifts and how the industries support that shift. So I actually wrote a post on New Year's Eve, 31st of December, 2019, 
And it's at freethewageslave.com slash succeed hyphen in hyphen 2020. And in that, I spoke about Society 5.0. So this is something that is already in progress in a lot of the world. So there have been four revolutions that we've gone through. There's the hunting age, the agrarian age, which is farming, industrial age, which was manufacturing, and the information age, which was computers. We you know, used to use our hands to create things from the land and sell those products. That was farming. Manufacturing was we would create products with our industry. And the information age was we would create wealth through technology. Well, the fifth revolution is about the super smart society. So it's basically AI, artificial intelligence. Listen, if you're not good with computers at this point, you are going to need to step your game up. That information age is going to require us to work with computers. The saving grace might be that computers will probably get smart enough to be able to work with us, even if we don't know how to work with them. I would tell you to go and look at something called the Digital Competence Framework from the European Union. It actually gives you the different topics that are going to be important as part of Society 5.0. And this is really important. Japan is already there as a society. We're running a bit behind. Now, some of the things in digital competence are going to be things like data literacy, digital content creation, things like coding, being able to browse and find information online, what they call netiquette, which is behavioral norms of how to use the internet. That one's for the old people. When you're doing selfies, don't put the phone underneath your chin. Nobody wants to see that, not even your family. <laughs> but digital content creation, different devices, there's a whole range of different things that you're going to be able to do and you're going to need to be able to know how to interact with online. AI is a huge part of that. So I would be looking, Dan, at the industries who are already leaders in those areas. So I am not a person that believes in Bitcoin as a single currency. I am somebody that believes in blockchain as a technology. I think any company that's at the forefront of blockchain technology are going to be in a great position. Any companies who are big in AI and machine learning, they're going to be in a great space because the way the world is working, we're busier than ever. A lot of those manual tasks, I think, are going to be replaced by technology and machines. There was a book I read about eight years ago, which was called, I think, Fast Thinking with the Right Brain, something like that. And it basically said that 80% of jobs are going to go to automation or Asia. And we've already seen a lot of that work go to Asia. You know, manufacturing is completely out there. But automation is the next big cusp. And, you know, computers could do a better job than us. I can ask for a report on marketing by literally asking Google show me the you know number of people who came to my site this month. I can say that verbally. Google can figure it out and show me the report. That's live now. Google can literally write my ads for me and manage the ads for me better than somebody that I was paying $500 a month before to do. So the technology is getting smarter. The Society 5.0, super smart society of artificial intelligence is beckoning. And I would tell you, start investing and looking at those companies, the ones that are positioning themselves to be at the forefront. It's early. It's probably going to take, you know, five years plus before they start picking up. But I think that's really a good place to be. It's a good place to put your money. And, you know, I wouldn't put everything in there, but I tend to try and look not at the trend of an industry right now, because if it's happening right now, we're already late, but more where is society likely to go? How would our daily lives be changed and if so, by what technologies, and then focus my time and attention there. 
So I hope it helps, Dan. A little bit vague, but I hope it gives you some direction. Okay, now the last two questions again come from Mr. C. Knowles. This guy's going hard on the questions, but I love the questions he's asking. They're really interesting questions, not just business. So I'm, I'm really liking these ones. So his question is, what is the big impossible dream that's so out of reach, but you'd love to see happen in your lifetime? Well, there are two things. So one is my lifetime mission is to have an entrepreneurship academy in London. And the vision for that is a physical academy that's open 24 hours a day, 365. Maybe Christmas Day, we'll let them have off, but pretty much round the clock. And while you're working in a nine to five, you can come there and incubate your business or your side hustle after work and on the weekends. There would be resources there. There would be education and knowledge, guest speakers, lectures. There would be angel investments. So you can get funding for your business and you know they get a cut of the business, but they mentor you and show you how to do it. There would be all of those resources you need as an entrepreneur, but you can incubate it in a way that is safe and on the side of your nine to five before you, you know, step out. The stepping out thing can be risky. And I really just thought, you know, what would have been helpful for me to have that doesn't exist in the world? Now, Free the Wage Slave is the first part of that, just online putting out content. Phase two looks like an online version of that academy. And then phase three is ultimately going to be the physical academy. And actually, 2017, on New Year's Eve, I presented to my family the plaque that's going to go on the wall. I had the plate made. It's a brass plate the size of a laptop screen. And it has the name of the institute, which is the Panaki Institute, named after my grandmother, Rosanna, one of the biggest inspirations in my life. And I showed that to my family and you know, told them, look, I'm going to make this happen. And I did it for two reasons. One, we'd all kind of been together through the passing of my grandma just three or three months before that. And it was, you know, a highly emotional time. And I wanted to show them that we were going to make her name live on. And secondly, because when you make a goal real, when you put it out into the world, that motivates you to actually make that thing happen. So your reputation is not harmed, you know? So I wanted to just really do that. And that is my biggest goal. It's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. I think it's going to happen but it's probably at least 10 years plus away at this point. But, you know, we don't know how the world works. That's definitely a big impossible dream. The second one that I have is one with Miriam, my girlfriend, which is to have an animal sanctuary. So we are both vegan. No judgment of anybody's beliefs. I ate meat for a long, long time. But I do want to get to that point where we can have animals who are probably being abused or being killed, and we can take them and actually give them somewhere where they can roam relatively free. You know, you can't have it like we'd like it where they get to roam completely free, but I'd like to have a big piece of land and we can rescue animals that are being abused and let them live there and be taken care of. And that's something that we absolutely are interested in focusing on. Miriam has a vegan Instagram account at the moment. So we're already doing some work in that. So both of us, even though it's impossible, we're making it a reality, even in the smallest first step. And I think that's important you know, to have a dream inside you, you did nothing with is worse than just to do something small. And even if it fails, you don't have that regret, you know, you're still doing something to make it happen. So that's the big impossible dream. Last question, who are two people, not friends or family that inspire you the most and why? I would tell you that the first one is my girlfriend. I tell her all the time, she's my hero. She is the strongest person I've ever met in my life. This is somebody who, when life knocks them down, 
just gets back up and you know life has knocked her down a fair amount over her years and you know the most amazing thing is she still believes in good she still believes in love in life in positivity in growing as a person and that's just so inspiring to me every single day i'm inspired by something that she does that she's just so nurturing and caring and loving and you know it would have been easy for life to turn you cold there's a lot of people that happens to and i'm just in awe of her ability to keep going to love and to believe in good things and you know she's just a positive influence on everybody around her she takes care of her two sisters even though she's the middle sister she takes care of her family she's always giving her mum advice about hey get your driving license why don't you do this course everything around that woman grows and um it's just amazing and yeah she's an awesome woman i love her a lot outside of that it's got to be dr di martini this is a man who definitely changed my life and really the two things were understanding what my values were because your values drive everything and uh, his book the values factor i recommend and you can also take his free test if you just google di martini d e m a r t i n i values test you'll find it for free when i realized you know what i was supposed to be doing in life and what my skills and abilities were and i started doing them everything changed and i stopped beating myself up about why i wasn't good at you know running the numbers or running the projects and that kind of thing the other thing that he did for me is his breakthrough experience seminar i found myself breaking down in tears it was the first personal development session i didn't realize i had you know this stuff i was carrying and it was a dark shadow over me for a long time and that breakthrough experience i'll talk about in a separate podcast if uh, you know anybody wants to hear it but i let something go that day and i walked out feeling lighter the world was a bit brighter and you know i really learned that my unhappiness was because i thought the world was just one sided i thought this person was bad you know that thing is good i thought that person is completely positive and that one's completely negative i had a black and white view of the world completely one sided and you know talk to di martini help me understand that actually there's two sides to everything and you know if you think somebody's just all good you're not seeing the negative side so you have an infatuation you're putting them above you when actually pay attention and look for both sides bring them into balance and you feel like you're on the same level as them and you know a relationship can go from there the flip side if you think someone's completely negative you put yourself above them they're in a pit you're in a pedestal you think you're hot shit and you think you know they're just a bad person or whatever and you have resent and that controls you actually if you look at that person even if you despise them and you try and find the equal positive balances you get to see both the negative and the positive side of that person everything comes into balance and that anger that was just held within you just disappears and you know every situation every thing that i was unhappy with in my life it's because i was looking at it from a one-sided perspective you know when i got to see the opposite side everything just changed i became happier instantly i stopped being angry at people for doing things because i realized it was just the way they are but they had an equal side even if i couldn't see it when someone did something bad to me i'd ask myself you know how did that serve me as much as it hurt me and i just stopped being angry i started letting life flow and life stopped controlling me i just kind of went with the tide and it made a big difference and look i'm not perfect i still have those days where i get pissed and i have to check myself and say you know what would dr di martini say but he definitely made a positive contribution to my life and you know he's made a contribution to a lot of people's lives so and that would be my answer and so with that boys and girls that is the end of the q and a episode 
I want to thank everybody for sending in their questions. I've enjoyed it a lot. These things get me thinking in a different direction and I hope that I've created a lot of value for you. And if you want me to do another one of these episodes anytime soon, you can always send a question to me at Free the Wage Slave or at Sky I Am on Instagram at voicelink.fm slash Free the Wage Slave. I've loved it. I've loved having you guys listen in. Love you people. Stay safe. If you enjoyed this episode, I want to talk to you about voicelink.fm. This is a place where you can send me any questions you have, and I'll include the answers to your question on a future episode of the podcast. We're going to be doing a lot more listener Q&A. I'll answer questions on business, finances, entrepreneurship, marketing, travel, personal development, success, productivity. Do I believe in aliens? Is the Illuminati real? Whatever it is that you want to know, I'm going to answer those questions. Go to voicelink.fm forward slash free the wage slave. That's voicelink.fm forward slash free the wage slave.